0: Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by the Hunter's Mate Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. Finally, a trail cam viewer that actually works. Lowdown's high-speed trail cam viewer has flippin' fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster, On a screen that is 60% bigger than typical 7-inch viewers. Lowdown is a dedicated viewer slash photo manager made for one thing and one thing only. Fast, uncomplicated viewing of your trail cam images and videos. Lowdown makes viewing large numbers of images fast and easy. It allows you to easily delete individuals or groups of selected images. Find out more at lowdownviewer.com. And also brought to you by alabama farmers co-op from backyard gardening to large-scale farming and everything in between your local co-op has what you need to be successful since 1936 alabama farmers cooperative has provided high quality products and friendly service to community members and local farmers with over 60 locations to serve you and 85 years of experience you can count on the co-op for more information and to find a location near you visit www.alafarm.com I'm your host Joe Bia here today with my co-host Butch Theory and Clint Flowers. Clint, you ever uh, seen pine trees get planted the wrong way?
1: Yeah, starting when I was a teenager, it was mostly done by me. I get introduced to the uh, J-rooting, as they call it, when I used to plant pine trees and you know, in between thinnings, plant log landing stuff like that. And uh, had landowners come behind me, hey, you're J-rooting these. What's that? And well, that's when you put the tree in the ground and the Root spins back up and comes right back out and it's poking out of the ground because you didn't put the tree in, whole, in correctly uh, after you ran through there with the dibble. So one of the main reasons that I don't run a site prep and reforestation company today.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, reforestation is something that you can do it wrong at that scale, like you're talking about. I mean, the actual boots on the ground, it, there's some things that can go wrong there, but also choosing the wrong type of pine tree and pine tree seedling for your property or for your goals uh, can be another way that it's done wrong, quote in quotes, as well. So today we're going to effort towards answering that question of what's the best pine tree seedling for your piece of property, uh, your goals, uh, everything that you want to get out of your timber stand. But before we do that today, joining us is Jonathan Smith, the executive director of Timber Mart South for this week's current timber market prices update in this week's segment. We're talking about Georgia. Last time we talked about Florida. Uh, We saw some pretty interesting changes in Florida uh, in the fourth quarter. We're talking fourth quarter of 21 today for Georgia. Are you seeing any of that Florida influence in Georgia? What's going on? Well,
2: thanks for having me. And uh, yes, we we are definitely seeing some of that influence on your uh, pine products, especially You know, Georgia is one of those states where we've got two regions that are pretty different. But South Georgia definitely felt some of the influence of Florida. Well, really just the wet weather in general, but uh, the stronger markets in that area.
3: Let's get down to the nitty gritty of it, Jonathan. What are you seeing in in the pine and what are you seeing in the hardwood market?
2: So in pine saw timber for fourth quarter 21, we had an average of 26.68. Uh, for pine chip and saw we had an average of twenty-three dollars and ninety cent and pine pulpwood we had thirteen oh three was our state average. Uh, if you look at hardwood saw timber, we were at twenty-nine seventy-eight and hardwood pulp wood was eleven sixty-four.
0: So if I'm remembering correctly, those numbers, especially on the pine side, those are much lower than Florida and uh more in line with what we were uh, saw back in Arkansas for the fourth quarter. Why the difference? Tell me about, uh, like you mentioned, I guess you got two markets there. Is That's a statewide average?
2: That is a statewide average. And, um, you know, Georgia Region 2 is a very big market, by the way we, we classify it. Um, so it averages itself out. Uh, you've got some coastal plain and Piedmont influence in there. You know, your Piedmont usually where you're a little more successful in the wintertime and in the wet weather. Um, as far as logging conditions and able to get the wood out. Um, and so, you know, we, we've seen some really high prices in South Georgia and Florida uh, over the last couple of quarters. But when you take Georgia and you, you put all the data together and average it together, it kind of levels itself out and brings it a little more in line with the rest of the South.
0: You know, Jonathan, last time we had you on, you're talking about how Florida's kind of a, it's an interesting economic environment because there's good competition in that state in terms of uh, mills and, and competition for these raw materials, you know, the for the timber itself. So in Georgia, is that landscape different? Uh, what's the competition like? And are you guys seeing any uh, investment in bringing online more capacity by the mills, you know, that would maybe point to there being more competition going into 22.
2: Yes, Georgia, Georgia is a little different. Um, you know, I, I talked about the discrepancy between Region 1 and Region 2 a little bit. And uh, if you look at a map or if you think about a map of Georgia and where the mills are located, uh, most of those are in the southern region. Uh, we do have a few that are on our transition zone or where Region 1 and Region 2 uh, come together. Uh, but if you get into North Georgia, you've got a lot of metropolitan areas and you've got, uh, and then you get into the mountains and it's just not the, uh, you know, the productive timberland, if you will, uh, that you have in South Georgia, uh, South Georgia has some of those influences, but South Georgia has got a pretty good diverse, uh, group of mills, uh, and they're located, pretty well throughout South Georgia. Um, so there's there's some competition, uh, but they're also positioned pretty well so that um, they provide good stable markets for the for the resource, uh, but they're not they're not as limited in their procurement radiuses as, say, Florida is. Um, so you you've got some of that, you know, again, a lot of that at play. Um, and really what what drives timber prices? Um, because we do have a lot of standing inventory in the South is accessibility and what what you can get out.
3: That's what I was just about to say. It sounds like accessibility is your biggest right. bear there.
2: And and we've had some wet couple of quarters, so we've seen some strong prices. Absolutely.
0: Well, you know, I, like we've talked about on previous segments, it's important to stay on top of what's going on uh, in your market. And Timbermark South is one way to do that. But also it's important to have a relationship with a, with a consultant forester, uh, in your area so that, you know, they'll be able to clue you in, uh, to what's going on in your market. Maybe these fluctuations that, that the averages don't pick up. So, you know, folks want to stay in touch with you guys and and check out a subscription and and everything, uh, and all the data y'all dive into there. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
2: Uh, yes, we'd love to talk to them. Uh, our website is probably the easiest way to get our contact information, and it's www.timbermart-south.com. And uh, like you pointed to, we, we generally point a landowner to a local consultant. They're, they're selling long-term assets that they've held and watched and enjoyed for many years. And so, they need the, the most local information they can get, and that's that's through a local consultant that can help them make sure that, that they're selling the right products to the right meals at the right time.
0: Well, Jonathan, it's always a pleasure, man. Thanks for uh, sharing the data with us, and uh, we'll be looking forward to the, the next segment.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Guys, let's take a quick break and hear from this week's sponsors. Patanus Defense, Masters of Darkness. Fatana's Defense is proud to offer the PD Pro line of night vision systems. The PD Pro series is the world's smallest and lightest night vision goggles. Built around the Fatana 16mm filmless 4G image intensifier tubes and their hybrid filmless 18mm image intensifier tubes. These ultra-light, ultra-compact night vision systems deliver the cleanest image, best resolution, smallest, most transparent halo and best overall performance and function of any night vision system available. The PD Pro line consists of the PD Pro M, 16mm monocular, the PD Pro B, 16mm binocular, and the PD Pro Q, panoramic night vision system, Patanas Defense, Masters of Darkness. And also brought to you by United Bank. United Bank knows what an important role agriculture plays in our local economy. At United Bank, they are here to support local farmers with financial products and services designed specifically for agribusiness, including real loans for farmland, equipment loans, working lines of credit, and more. Truth is, they deeply value the contribution agriculture makes to our communities, and they help local farmers build successful businesses. They want you to succeed. Learn more at unitedbank.com or stop by at any United Bank branch. United Bank, all loans subject to credit approval. Equal housing opportunity lender. Member FDIC. And welcome back. Today, we're going to effort towards answering that question of what's the best pine tree seedling for your piece of property, uh, your goals, uh, everything that you want to get out of your timber stand. And to help us do that is Jason Watson with ArborGen. Jason, welcome to Huntland, man. Tell us a little bit about what you do at ArborGen. Well, thanks,
4: Joe. Yeah. So I am the manager of reforestation advisors or seedling sales, you know, for the entire Southeast uh, the lower southern states. So, if you think about it, that ranges from the Pine Range from East Texas all the way back to southeastern Virginia. Now, we also sell a lot of hardwoods uh, to landowners. So, we we do get up into a little bit of the southern Ohio Valley, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, those kind of places. Maybe like West Virginia. We have a little bit more of an extensive range when you think about hardwoods, but primarily our group works in the lower Southern states. And um, there's six reforestation advisors that report into me, they kind of split up those territories they're, I'll have a forestry background and or nursery background. So we, we work really closely with uh, timberland investment management organizations, which a lot of people call Tino's for short. We also work probably more than with any other group with consulting foresters and tree planters, but also a big segment of the people that we work with and serve are private landowners, You know, which as you probably know, the you know, when you get in the southeastern United States, the private land ownership by far is the biggest um, ownership versus like out west where it's federal and, and state like that. So a good bit of our time is spent on education um, and reforestation options, some early early rotation silviculture, as we call it, working with private landowners on a daily basis.
0: Well, it's a lot of what we do as well. And, you know, when we're talking to these landowners out there, regardless of the, of the amount of land they own, it seems like everybody's got like a favored pine tree. You know, they're like, no, you got to <laughs> you gotta plant this one. You know, you got to plant that one. And there's a love affair for some people with certain types. So let's first off just define what types of options we've got in pine tree seedlings. What do we have to choose from? You know, we'll focus on the Southeast for today.
4: A- absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things we always kind of have to remember uh, when we're working with private landowners is, and gosh, we we all learn this back in either taking forestry classes um, or wildlife classes, land management classes, what have you, is it all comes down to the landowner's objectives. But certainly within those objectives, there are several options. Now, in terms of, you know, timberland management, the predominant species is still loblolly pine Loblolly pine, uh, gosh, tree improvement, you know, genetics research started with uh, loblolly pine back in the mid 1950s. And so that was because, you know, loblolly pine actually, it lends itself very well to production forestry, to turning over rotations every 25 to 30 years. And so back then, when the pulp and paper companies were just getting started, a lot of, uh, well, they realized that uh, loblolly pine was... You know, it's, it was easy to work with in terms of seed production, and it was very flexible on a, on a really big range of sites in the Southern, the Southeastern United States. So it, it has, you know, been in tree improvement genetics programs for going back, like I said, to the 1950s. But certainly another big species that is used is a uh, slash pine, which is uh, normally planted along the, you know, the I 10 corridor up into. Southern Georgia, probably below I-16, maybe a little bit north of I-16, but usually that's pretty site-specific. You know, the slash pine works really well on wet sands, and it's kind of specific to those locations. Still needs to be bedded a lot of times in the flatwoods on those areas that I just described, but it's certainly a really good option for those um, locations. And then, of course, one that I think you guys are really familiar with, and one that is really in the past, gosh, since my career started in the in the mid '90s, but probably probably more more so in the, the 2000s, a really big emphasis has been on longleaf restoration. And so there has been a a lot of a lot of growers. There's been a lot of research done on where we can plant longleaf and really understanding the silviculture or management of longleaf and understanding what land again coming back to what a landowner's goals are. You know, you see a lot of landowners who are interested in you know, they have multiple objectives that uh, may consist of timber and and wildlife in terms of you know bobwhite quail or also they they may not even be managing for wildlife but they they want to grow they want to grow pine trees for straw for pine straw which is a huge market as you guys know and really longleaf is is the predominant species for straw production slash can be used also but definitely not loblolly I don't think that's acceptable to any of the straw producers and landscapers
0: yeah Butch you just kind of went through. This. That on your place we did right?
3: unfortunately yeah <laughs> yeah uh
0: yeah I mean you know they just found out that there wasn't much of a market for for blah like yeah. for straw anyway at yeah, least in agreed, in, yeah. in his area so longleaf seems like the yeah. way to go and it seems like you're talking about those landowner goals we get to talk to a lot of people that are in this you know in this uh decision process and it seems like they are somewhere on a spectrum of, of making the most money possible or having the best wildlife habitat possible and it's it's pretty rare that i find somebody that's just totally on one end of the spectrum but they definitely almost always lean one way or the other so if we're talking about those three species and wildlife, let's say we are on the other end of that spectrum and wildlife is just our biggest focus. Uh, we don't really, you know, we just don't really care about the money that much. We're just all about whatever kind of wildlife it is we want to chase, whether it's quail, turkeys, deer, what kind of species, you know, how do we choose the best species for for that goal in mind? I guess I'll kind of back
4: into that question a little bit, kind of start on the opposite the end of what uh, my instinct might've been. But, you know, certainly with loblolly and slash pine, if you're a landowner that has, let's just take, for example, if somebody has hundred acres and they have maybe a, a creek that runs through it. Uh, so there's a riparian zone there and they're trying to, as most people are, they're following best management practices that are part of every state now has best management practices, which require some kind of a buffer around a creek and, you know, they want to break up their cuts. They don't want to cut the whole 100 acres of pine at one time, they may cut 40 acres one year and they may wait 10 years and cut another 60 acres. I think Joe, you mentioned earlier when we were uh, talking off the air, you mentioned that you had some mature pine and you had some maybe mid rotation age pine. And so certainly there are some opportunities to kind of break that habitat up. And so it's not all one, just, you know, monoculture and it's um in terms of the same stage in growth. Right. You know, so those are opportunities there. I know growing up, when I was growing up in Mississippi, I, on some of our land in eastern Mississippi, I loved uh, clear cuts after the first and second year for the deer habitat. <laughs> no doubt. But certainly, you know, one that is probably kind of has the most cachet, or the most, uh, or lends itself to the most, you know, multi-structural, maybe if you will, an edge effect situations, and 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 certainly burning um, is Longleaf Pine. You see a lot of people who are, and and we and we work with a lot of landowners like this who it's like you said, Joe, they're. They want the timber aspect of it to be able to grow good trees, but they also want the opportunities maybe for good bird habitat or, and I'm talking about uh, wild quail and, you know, and turkeys, certainly. And you'll see them plant a lot of longleaf because they can burn at early ages. And, you know, maybe go in there to low, um, the low trees per acre, low stocking rate and have a lot of options to be able to plant you know, grasses underneath the longleaf and still burn. So it's, there's a lot of uh, opportunities there with longleaf pine. Certainly they're unique to that species.
0: Yeah, that's definitely what attracts me to them. Like I was mentioning, you know, off the air, kind of my situation and wanting to be able to continue to burn, even if we do some reforestation is, is they're attractive in that, in that regard. But, you know, speaking of that, I mean, I know loblollies have come a long way and you typically hear people say, you know, oh, generally, you know, you're going to not be able to burn loblollies for a decade is what a lot of the number that gets thrown out a lot. Is that still holding true? I mean, what prevents you from burning in a stand of loblolies? Is it their height that you really need to be focused on?
4: Yeah, it's really you know the um, in terms of with loblolly pine, it's a situation where that species, it's not really the height aspect of it because it's actually growing at a you know long leaf is actually going to stay in the grass stage for probably two years before it really starts a lot of vertical growth. You guys may have noticed that before. I know a lot of landowners will come in and say, gosh, you know, remember when I told you that we had really good survival two years ago when we planted? Well, that, you know, I was really excited about that, but I just wish they would grow. <laughs> well, well, that that's actually because, that's actually because longleaf, you know, sits in what they call a grass stage for longer While, you know, with some of our really, our more advanced genetics of loblolly and slash, but really much more so in loblolly, you know, after two years, we may have trees that are already 10 feet in total height. So it's not, it's not that issue at all. It's more of the, the tree physiology, it's a tree physiology thing with longleaf pine that is more resistant. You know, it's um, the needle characteristics and the resistance that it has, um, even just in the, the physiology of the tree to allow it to be burned through and, it doesn't kill the bud when you burn over longleaf pine. Whereas with loblolly, it's very, you know, susceptible to the, the bud itself. The resting bud that's sitting there is a lot more susceptible to, to char, you know, to death. you'll, you'll even see in um, a lot of times in in loblolly stands that are 10 and 15 years old, or maybe even 25 years old. If the fire gets up in the crown and chars it really hard, it may kill, you know, it may kill the trees with a big crown fire like that. So
0: yeah, so you know, kind of flipping over to the other end of the spectrum for landowners that are like, look, you know, I, I'm not too worried about the hunting. I really want to grow big trees and and maximize my timber income off this property. I'm guessing you lean more towards the loblollys and the slash for that. I'm um, take take yeah. me through your thought process there. That that's right. And that really
4: does. It, it's kind of like and this is actually worth saying too, but I'll say in a few minutes kind of comes full circle with what what I was going to mention, you know, in the for southern pine production There's probably, gosh, uh, in planting, I should say, in terms of planting from the planting effort that goes on every year between East Texas and and Southeastern Virginia, there's probably about 900 million seedlings that are planted. And gosh, probably 720 to 750 million of those are loblolly maybe about a hundred to 120 million. And, and, you know, somebody could listen to this and say, you're wrong. It's 150 million, but somewhere in that range is probably about how much longleaf is, is planted. There's probably, I'm going to reveal my bad. I try to say, I don't do math in public, so I'll reveal my bad numbers here, but you know, probably about 30 million or so, maybe 40 million slash. So, but the predominant, you know, suffice it to say the dominant species that is planted is loblolly because it is true that, you know, a lot of landowners are, gosh they're like my family they're going to cut 100 acres 200 acres and it'll be 15 20 years before they plant again. and so they're doing it from an income perspective where they want to be able to clear cut it again in 25 years with with good management and good genetics you know so and so certainly as i mentioned earlier I wanted to mention the predominant species as loblolly was planted. And that is, like I said, going back earlier, when the, the pulp and paper companies that really came on strong in the 1930s and 1940s began, you know, understanding that loblolly was really an easy, an easy species to regenerate, uh, to manage in the woods and to cut. Over, you know, to turn rotations over every 30 to 40 years, which heck now that sounded like 20 to 25 years because of improved uh, management.
1: Speaking of genetics, you know what, I know you guys offer a lot of options, especially in loblolly. I mean, what are the different types and what are the real differences between those? The good news is there's a
4: lot of options out there, but it can be sort of confusing. So the one main thing to remember is there's three main types of genetics, mostly, like I said, in loblolly pine, but also it's growing a little bit with slash pine. But the main three types are open pollinated, where we know the mother that the genetics came from. If you could picture uh, you know, a pecan orchard, our pine collection seed orchards look just like a pecan orchard they're on grids like that and we go in and we collect pine cones every october september and october you know it's about a maybe 80 to 100 seed per cone so the open pollinated is still the the majority of what is planted where we know we know the mama tr- we collected those cones from the mama tree in the seed orchard but we don't know the father now because loboli pine you know, is monoecious. it has male and female uh, flowers. We're, we know we're getting some pollination from that improved seed orchard, that seed collection area that we have managed specific, specifically for the genetics we want. But there's also about 30% of the pollen. Think about how your, your truck looks in March, you know, in late February, March is covered in pollen and pine pollen, it'll fly for, you know, hundreds of miles. So we also know that a lot of those trees in our seed orchard are getting pollinated by fathers that we don't want. You know how you're riding down the interstate and you see some of the worst looking trees in the right of way that are crooked and have big forks in them and disease, you know, on them. Squeezed in there. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. So what what has really transformed the industry over the last probably 20 to 25 years has been the onset of mass control pollinated trees or what we call MCPs. Some people call those uh, control mass pollinated, but it's the same thing. It's, it's control pollination, which is really the same thing that, you know, they did with agricultural research did back with corn back in the 30s and 40s. So it's really the same thing. It's just a hybrid pine is all it is. But, but the big genetic gain is the fact that we know the mother and we know the father. And we're isolating those female flowers before any wild pollen can hit them in the spring. Uh, we put up these big paper bags over, over the flowers in the, in February, we'll put up over a million paper bags in our seed orchards across the South. And so it's a big effort um, to isolate the genetics that we want. And by doing that, you get really big genetic lift in in growth or what we call productivity, but also in stem straightness and disease resistance and also forking reduction. So, you know, Landowners couldn't even plant these seedlings before 2008, and you know, I think we were producing less than you know, 20 million of those back in those days, and now it's well over 100 million of those seedlings and, that are getting planted across the southern U.S. every, every year.
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I know we're we're getting ready to do a thinning on my place, and it's exactly what you just described. We're getting all the the dirty wood out. You know, it's the fork yeah. trees and the cat faces and everything. That's what's coming out, and yes. it's a lot. You know, on my stands, it's it's a good bit. It's more than I'd like it to be. Yeah, I'd like it if it wasn't that way. Uh, that so, means you didn't have
1: Arborgen seed. Well, yeah. well, they weren't <laughs> weren't available. You know, and heck, when these things yeah.
0: were planted, I was you know just yeah. just barely alive. So. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, don't let me
4: fail to mention, there is one other option, and that's varietals or clones. That's where we've taken one MCP seed, found the best individual seed, and mass propagated that to make millions of copies of one seed. Now, you know, that's less than probably 2 or 3% of what we produce. Arbogen is the only company that makes those seedlings, but they are still in demand. And that it does represent the highest level of genetic gain. It's just that it's a smaller, you know, amount of the production that we produce. Certainly, it's it's on smaller scale than MCP and, o, and OP, but it still is out there. One of the things I tell people, it's not that it, those are not genetically engineered trees; they're just propagated, you know, from one single seed using natural processes.
1: When you say it's it's not as predominant as the MCP, is that a cost barrier, or why is that? Because you would you would think that's the one everybody would want. Yeah, actually,
4: Bruce uh, Zobel, who started the North Carolina State Tree Improvement Co-op back in the mid-50s, he was kind of the godfather of tree improvement in the United States. He always said if we could get to that level, it would be um, the Holy Grail, you know, because we found the best individual. There's no, there's no, the only variation out there would be from the environment, you know, from different, mm-hmm. you can map out your soils, basically, because you get the same tree, planted in every location. But you're exactly right, Clint, that's a... The big barrier there is it's really um, it's production, getting the production refined, the techniques refined. And we've been working on it for years. But in terms of propagating that seed uh, into a little germinate that then gets transplanted into containerized seedling is um, it's really hard to do that in the millions of seedlings. And so and and it's also it's expensive. They're expensive to produce. So as a company, we're still working on and refining those techniques to maybe bring it to scale, you know, to, in a bigger way some, someday down the road.
1: Jumping back to the hybrids, I'll tell you another way you can really dominate the market. If you guys can figure out how to come up with a pine tree that will drop acorns. Uh, <laughs> sorry, great. Uh, I mean, it's, it's world
4: domination
1: then. That's right.
4: Yeah, that's like people tell us we need to figure out how to produce square. T- the, lumber, the lumber guys tell us to yeah. figure out how to produce square trees. Yeah. yeah.
1: I bet that would
3: be beneficial
1: square trees that drop acorns and
4: just game over
1: (laughs) exactly
3: that's right
4: all in one that's exactly right someday maybe we'll see
3: so jason just a side note i'm I'm intrigued by the varietal the propagated seeds i would assume that the end outcome of that would be a faster growing straighter more efficient tree all around
4: yeah uh, but it really is i mean the so when you have found that one individual that, you know, it, it's the fastest growth. It's got the straightest trees. Like every tree is a is a light pole. And then they, they don't have disease at extremely low incidence. You know, like uh, people call them cat faces. Like Joe mentioned that that's fusiform rust that is, you know, just really hits us really hard uh, down in the southeastern United States. Uh, more more so on the eastern side of Mississippi River than the west, but it's over there too. And then also the trees that have you know, hardly any forks, you know, a fork in the first 17 feet automatically t- makes it pulpwood. So when you've got the, a really high percentage um, of those trees grow and, you know, they're growing fast and they're just the, the best trees you can produce. Yeah. It's, we, we have a landowner down in Florida. Certainly he's got a, a longer growing season than where I live here in South Carolina, but he had planted, he planted the stand uh, back in 2009 and has already fended twice. Wow. It was like 60 acres. And so he's, he's, in he, the second inning was done at age 12 and he already cut chip and saw out of it. So it's, it's really amazing um, what you can do. What we find most, landers, most landowners doing is planting the hybrids, the MCPs that are really focused on, on return on investment because it's still at a, you know, re, a reasonable investment, but also offers a really big bang for the buck, you know, going from open pollinated to mass control pollinated.
1: Well, and plus with us, I mean, our market's gotten more and more pulp-based with these giant swings and, and pulpwood prices we get every winter. Yeah. A lot of these rotations never see salt timber anymore. That's true.
4: That's very true. That's happened a lot. Yeah, You know,
1: when you can get $25 pulpwood, why are you going to grow it another 15 years to get $32 a ton salt timber? That's correct.
4: Yeah,
0: that's exactly right. All right, guys, let's take a quick break. Don't forget about our sponsors and make sure you support them when you're out in the marketplace. Boater's List. Boater's List is your new, reliable, and fast resource designed to link everyone to everything on the water. If you run a boat, you know how difficult it can be to find the right company for the task at hand. Boater's List makes this easy and easy to find the service you are looking for. Locate anything from fuel docks to service repairs or rentals of large yachts all the way down to paddle boards and all things in between. Boaterslist.com will always strive to make it better on the water. And also brought to you by Great Days Outdoors magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for the guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of the guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, Bass Pro Shops, Academy Sports and Outdoors, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. You know, in case you didn't get the idea earlier, I really like to burn stuff. So (laughs) I'm also thinking, you know, with these MCP or or clones, you know, these, these trees are, they're going to grow faster. You mentioned, you know, I kind of asked you earlier, but are you still looking at about the same period of time that you can burn those varieties? What are we really looking at from the day we put them in the ground to when you can feel confident by running a prescribed fire through there? Yeah. I
4: mean, it would be pretty close to the same, Joe, I mean, in terms of a lot of times, and believe me, you know, these they are the hybrids, the MCPs, and even some of the really elite open pollinated families are they're growing at a you know, the the south wide average right now, probably still from a growth and yield standpoint, is about five and a half to six tons per acre per year. Okay. On just an annual basis. And um, the really elite OP families, but especially the MCP families that are breeding the really elite families together, you're going to see anywhere from eight and a half to nine and a half, maybe 10 tons break or sometimes, depending on the site, depending on the management, you know, the site preparation that was done. But in terms of, you know, the height growth that you're comfortable with, you're still probably going to be up in the nine to 11 12 13 age range before you're really ready to burn in some of those stands so it's still vastly different than like a long leaf
0: yeah it's just the what? trade-off you've got to you've got to understand going into it. like you said i mean i'm i'm with you if, yeah. if there's a clear cut on a place that's where i'm going to be hunting if it's yeah. probably say five years older or younger you know i really love those clear cuts for all that you know that early successional stuff yeah. that starts popping up and but then once it hits that you know that five four or five year mark, it kind of you're gonna have a period of time there where it's, it's going to be just just for growing that tree from a hunting perspective and and then you can get back to to burning it and uh, you know doing things again uh, whereas something maybe on the long leaf side of things is it's going to be kind of huntable from the time you start you know to some in some respects so yeah. I think you've done a good job of describing really the spectrum there it, not only does somebody have to choose the type of tree that they they want to plant based on their location, their soil type, their goals, whether it's income or wildlife, but they've also got variations within the type of tree that they need yeah. to make a decision on and again, based on their goals. And then I guess too, Clint, you know, you're dealing with some invasives down there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think he touched on this earlier. Basically the bloboli blah, blah is more chemical friendly, long leaves more fire friendly at a young age. I mean, that may be a little bit of an oversimplification, but in general. So when you got stuff like Kogan grass here that. Takes off in that long leaf for a period of time. You just have to watch it and eat it until it that long leaf's big enough and safe enough to try to do some chemical work in it, right? Or until hopefully it crowns out some, and I mean uh, closes in some, and then you can kind of shade it out some and help keep it manageable. But then we've got popcorn trees and all other kind of stuff that we get to deal with in these coastal areas. Yeah. On the growth rates per acre, you were just mentioning what density. Is that typically at i mean what are y'all seeing in these like just mcps for example what density are they planning
4: well one of the things that we we always remind people is make a little joke and say this is not your grandmother's pine tree so be careful what your your stocking rate is we still see we'll still see some people that are really uh they're, they're used to the old um back again i keep saying this but the old uh in the pulp and paper company days, the heydays, people are planting 800 trees per acre, you know, 726 trees per acre, which I, I think is a six foot between the trees, 69. 10, 10 yeah. feet between them. Yeah. You'll still see people doing that from time to time. But with with advanced genetics like MCPs, you need to be really careful that they're going to develop a lot differently. The, this whole stand dynamics, you know, are going to be different than what you did 25, 30 years ago. Because, you know, stop and think about this for just a minute. You know i know there were some stands that were established by my family like i said in eastern mississippi where we didn't even do any site prep we just planted seedlings back in the 80s and um you know we might have planted 700 trees breaker and it was whatever the it was whatever the tree planter had on his trailer so we didn't we just didn't know any any better so with the hybridization of the pine we tell people to be really careful you know uh, more, I'd say the most common stocking right now with advanced genetics is probably 500 to 550, probably more like 550 trees per acre. And mm-hmm. you're going to need, th- you're going to need to thin those. If you've done good site preparation by, it. you know, and this is kind of painting with a broad brush because soils are so different, but you probably, you could need to get in there and thin it still by age 11 or 12. If you're planting 700 trees per acre, you got to be careful because there's going to be so much inner tree competition. Some of the stand may start to fall apart. You know, if you don't get in there and thin, and, and schedule your thinning on time. So you, you have to be really mindful of that. And the other thing too, Clint, is, you know, what's so important that landowner has to really step back and take stock. Of course, we always tell landowners, you know, work with a forester, you know, get some forestry advice. There's a lot of professional foresters out there that, I mean, I'm one myself. I'm not a consulting forester, but, you know, talk to foresters, at least get a second opinion and think about your markets. There's places, um, you're talking about southwestern uh, Alabama, but there's places in north Alabama, north Mississippi, where there's really, there's, there's really, there's just bad pulpwood markets. There is no pulpwood market. Landowners up there, I mean, I talked to a forester in Tuscaloosa a year ago, Alabama, that's doing a lot of management in north Alabama, and they're planting in the mid 400s per acre because they're, they're growing for salt timber for chip and right. salt timber.
1: So they just blow on through that pulpwood yeah. straight in the chip and saw. Yeah. They're
4: trying to grow better, better genetics and mostly have chip and saw and saw temper.
1: Yeah. yeah, I see. You mentioned site, depending on the type of site prep and good site prep. I mean, what is good site prep in your opinion for these types of seedlings?
4: Well, you know, certainly back in the, you know, gosh, in the seventies, people were doing mostly mechanical, you know, sixties and seventies, people were doing a lot of mechanical site prep and windrowing you could look at aerial photos and the trees that were closest to the windrows were the tallest and they was like what's going on here what, what it was they were pushing all the topsoil yeah a little compost know, next yeah. to the windrows yeah it's really it's really amazing they said you could see it's just alarming to look at the aerial photography and so what what was going on at the same time there was a lot of development from Uh, herbicide companies in terms of using using chemicals for site preparation and you know slowly that began to get adopted in the 80s and then when my career as I mentioned started in the 90s it was just ubiquitous you know site chemical site preparation was everywhere well now you know kind of the rule of thumb is if you're a landowner and you know you really want to see what they say vegetation coming back after you've clear cut and if you the rule of thumb is if you see waste high vegetation where you see some of your your oaks and your sweet gums especially maybe some hickory and maybe grasses coming back that what we always advise people to do is get a good chemical site preparation on there to kill not only the the weeds and the uh, grasses you know and um and hardwoods the woody vegetation that's coming back, but but also a comp- a big component of that woody vegetation is natural pine.
2: So, boy, um, yeah. That's a
4: big problem now. You know, Joe, you are mentioning uh, burning. How much you like to burn? That's I think people are mostly waiting to age two or three to to burn through longleaf pine stands. Let them get established at least for a year. Maybe not going there till a year, two or three. But another big reason people are having to do that is to kill out some of the loblolly pine that's coming back in those stands. So yeah, loblolly regeneration from natural pine has has become a big thing. You don't, you know, a big competitor, you know, if if Clint's out there planting 500 MCP elite, you know, trees and going, okay, I'm looking forward. I'm going to be able to thin this by the time it's age 12, you know, then, we want to make sure as much soil nutrition, as much water is going to that seedling and not, not competitors. We want to give it all to the seedling as much as possible.
1: Yeah, definitely. Joe and I were talking before you guys got on about the difference between chemical site prep and chemical release. You know, it sounds like you're recommending chemical site prep as opposed to chemical release because the chemical release won't kill the loblolly. And we don't want to kill our loblolly that we bought from our Virginia planet, but we yeah. do want to kill that that volunteer, that blow-in. So it sounds like a, a chemical site prep would be more effective here to protect the, this effort, I guess you'd say.
4: And, and it is, Clint. And what, what we see most often, if, if there's, you know, well, we see this a lot, you know, and all our reforestation advisors uh, are kind of programmed to think this way. You know, a lot of landowners will say, I don't want to lose a year. We just finished clear-cutting. It's, you know, it's August September. We want to plan as soon as possible because we don't want to lose a year, but you're really better off to wait and let it lay out till the next summer and then do the chemical site preparation. In five years, your trees will be bigger than if you rushed it. Kind of a rule of thumb is if you're past, you know, in most areas, if you're past like mid to late June or July, it's almost better uh, to let it roll over to another year and uh, let all that competing vegetation sprout back then get a good chemical site prep on it. And in five years time, you'll be further ahead than if you rushed it. Uh, Landowners will tell us, they say, don't you want to sell me some trees? And we'll say, yes, that's our job. I mean, we have to sell trees to stay in business, but, but most of us are registered foresters and we, you know, we're, we really are trying to look out for the landowners and make sure that they're thinking about those things. Cause you really, if you stop and think about it, it's crucial. You get one chance to get it Right. And you're stuck with that for the next 20, 25 years. So we're really trying to look at it like, if this was my property, what would I do? And we always go into it by trying to ask a lot of questions to make sure that we're advising people the right way and that they're thinking about it in that fashion. They're thinking about, okay, you know, I'm trying to do this. I want to be able to pay for my kids college or my grandkids college. What is the best thing? I want to get it right. We try to approach it from that, you know, from that view.
3: Yep. That's a big deal. It's a big commitment. Like you're talking about, I mean, you only get one chance at it in 20 or 30 years. That's a big commitment. Yeah. (laughs) I want to bring you back a little bit to like what you were saying. I really like what you were saying about consulting a forester. Um, You know, they're a good shoulder to lean on whenever you're trying to figure out these big decisions. So as a landowner, we've been going through, you've done a really good job of breaking it down into seedlings and what each one is better for than the other. What type of questions should we ask our forester about the nursery that we're going with to buy these seedlings from?
4: Well, yeah, certainly. I would certainly say that, uh, gosh, I mean, the first nursery was built, I think, in Bogalusa, you know, Louisiana, like 100 years ago. It's like 1922, I think, actually, or 26. I can't remember. So most nurseries that are out there today are, gosh, they're they're all very reputable. um, And uh, most of them belong to uh, Auburn University uh, houses a nursery uh, research cooperative. Most of them are members, but I would certainly ask my forester if they were a member of the Auburn University Nursery Cooperative. And, you know, that, that's something good because that means they're sharing research ideas. They're up on the latest you know, information that's out there in terms of taking that research and development that's being done at Auburn and putting that back to work in their nurseries. I know one of the things we hold really near and dear to our hearts at ArborGen that we think is crucial is we have an in-house kind of third party. It's really our our product development or our genetics group does a, a third party analysis, if you will. I mean, we have our nursery group, but also our genetics group uh, is in charge of maintaining a seedling quality analysis. Uh, it's kind of a third, internal third-party way of looking at quality control. And we track the crop when it's been in the ground for about six or seven weeks. And we, we do perna- permanent plots over the year to where we're really understanding from a micro level, you know, what the crop needs in terms of micronutrients, or excuse me, macronutrients, uh, irrigation, so, um, fertilization, things like that, it's done on a real micro level. And so, you know, those things are good to know because a lot of times you're right, uh, but I mean, the consumer doesn't know all the things that go into how the trees are produced. And one thing I'll say too that this is, this just popped into my head, but it's a, it's uh it's also something that we, we made a decision as a company about eight years ago, you're talking about the nurseries, but before the the trees get in the nurseries, they come from our seed orchards, where we're growing our our desired genetics in the, in the orchard trees and collecting those cones. And there's, in our whole system, there's over 20,000 trees where we collect those cones from. You know, it doesn't sound like a lot of trees because we produce millions of trees every year, but it, it, it only takes, you know, it's in the, the 20,000, mid-20,000 range probably. Well, uh, we decided to DNA fingerprint all of our orchard trees in the seed orchards and we now have the um the snip technology that allows us to actually dna sequence every single genotype that we have growing in our orchards so that you know if clint had a stand that was like eight years old and he said are these really the trees they sold that sold me that they said was on the the invoice and on the sticker on the box we could take a few handfuls of the, uh, the needles off those trees and actually run them through and, and DNA sequence those and know that it was that family. Wow. Well, that technology exists now. So it's really fascinating. But what happened was we were at a landowner meeting and the guy and a guy said, how do I know what you're telling me I'm getting is what I'm really getting. And so we went on a mission and we are able now to take, we could take uh, you know needles off of a pine tree, if you will. And, You know, and and DNA sequence them and know that you're you're getting what you're what we're telling you you're
0: getting. You ever you ever seen how they name coon dogs? You know, they're like this is Copper Penny's Whiskey River. I can see this is going to be like Uh, Clint's Clint's going to be walking uh, out there in his trees, and he's going to be like, you know, this is this tree's daddy and yeah, mama (laughs) follow follow that sap line all the way down. Exactly
1: right. Uh, That's exactly
4: right. Well, we uh, do. We we just think from a chain of custody. People are making a higher investment now in their site prep, but also, especially with their seedlings, we think that chain of custody should be there if they want to know that it's there just for peace of mind.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, that brings a yeah. whole new meaning to family tree, I guess. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and backing, yeah, up, is...
0: backing up what you're saying too. You know, I mean, like you said, it's, it's one thing to make a claim. It's another thing to be able to actually prove it. Exactly. Really cool, really cool stuff, man. I mean, there's a lot out there. There's more here than I thought there would be, honestly, when we started talking about this show I figured we'd get to the end of it and just be kind of like okay we need this for that and this for that but the reality is a lot of options man like a lot of the things we talk about with land is it depends it depends on your soil depends on your goals it depends on your your region your location Uh, depends on the timber markets in your area so if landowners listen to this hopefully they kind of are on the right track at least by the end of this show and they feel like they kind of know where they need to be. But I would imagine reaching out to somebody like you uh, or reaching out to the company there would be a good next step to take if they want to figure out exactly what what type of tree and maybe what type of seedling, you know, once they get there. Oh, um, absolutely. But so Jason, I mean, I, we've answered a lot of questions today. I feel like people are going to be on the right track after this to know not only what type of pine seedling they're going to need, but what type of you know, seedling within that certain type of pine tree, they're going to want to get. But if they do have specific questions about maybe their management goals, their their soil conditions, their their region, the country, that everybody's situation is going to be unique. And they want to reach out to somebody. What's the best way for them to do that? Should they go to the website or, or, or reach out to somebody like you to to answer those questions?
4: The former will get you the latter. So going to the going to the website, which is just arborgen.com that's a r b o r and then g e n like short for genetics.com it has my information but it also shows the territories of where all of our reforestations are has their phone number their email um, even has obviously a 1-800 number a toll-free number if those even matter anymore but we have that on the website and and certainly we would be happy to that's that's what we do every day we talk to private landowners foresters and so that's that's just part of what we do every single day. And you know, often I wanted to mention this too, really quickly. Um, I, I know we're getting close to running out of time here, but quite often, and, and I think you guys have, you know, we've covered so much today, and we've we've had a great discussion. But what, a lot of times, what we find and this is what's so much fun about the job. We'll have a lot of times where landowners will plant. You know, they'll have maybe 100, 200 acres. And they'll plant a really, an area they want to devote to high production forestry and loblolly. They may have 15 acres, you know, or 20 acres that's kind of where they want to plant some longleaf. And then they'll, we also, we also grow about 35 species of hardwoods. And so about just under 10 million of those seedings every year also. So it can be a really diverse management plan sometimes. And certainly by going to that website and contacting our reforestation advisors, my team, we stand ready to serve people to help them meet their objectives.
0: Jason, thanks so much for joining us, man. Uh, you know, you got me thinking about a hardwood show, so maybe we'll have to back <laughs> on to talk about that. That's oh right. yeah. We'd
4: we'll, we'll love to do it. Thank you.
0: Guys, there's a lot in this. There's a lot in the show to unpack. The thing I really think my takeaway right now is just that you need to sit down with somebody who understands this a heck of a lot better than than I do, better than probably all of us do, and let them look at your situation, your multivariate situation, the things that you can control and the things you can't control, uh, and give you some advice on what it is you need to do if you're about to go through reforestation.
3: Yep. There's a lot to it, man. There's a lot of options. Like you're talking about, everything's going to be different for pretty much everybody's unique situation, your soil type, what's driving your goals as far as generating income or wildlife or somewhere in the middle. Um, I mean, let's be, let's be honest here. The technology has come not just from the planting side, but also the genetic side. It's come a long way since Clint was, as a young lad, dibbling down the the pine lane, if you will.
1: Yeah, I mean the main thing for me is just you know trying to figure out you know which variant do I want the OCP, MCP, the clones. I mean I want the know. Hulk. You know if we're being yeah. real, let's get some yeah. of those clones up in here. Yeah, I mean that's that's, that's crazy. Just, this is and it's just be cool to tell everybody when you get here. But Right. But yeah, so I mean that's the main thing, and, and it's like we talk about all the time with landowners and and buyers uh, when we're out looking at land, It's, you know timberland is not timberland. It's not timberland. Every track's different. Every site's different. How is it site prepped? How many trees per acre there are? What variety are they? What company are they from? So there's a lot of things that you need to understand, or at least understand what you don't know when you're going to buy or sell a track of land and learning from shows like this and understanding what questions to ask is paramount.
0: Yeah. You know, going back to naming trees, Clint, I mean, like if you've got those clones out there, like, is it like, well, this tree is Frank and this one's Frank and this one's Frank, and you just—I mean—are they all Franks at that point? Maybe. Uh, well, it sounded like,
1: according to him, the pine tree could be Francis or Frank. That's true. That's true.
0: We appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen, so here's a handy option for you to get the podcast emailed to you each week. Just text the word "hunting" to seven seven three seven seven zero four three seven seven. Again, just text the word "hunting" to seven seven three seven seven zero four three seven seven. You'll join our email list. And wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you got a show topic that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros@landhunting.com. at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's Huntland Show is brought to you by Southern Seed and Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients for your deer? Check out Southern Buck. Your deer will love it visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662-726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. And also, Bucks Island Marine. Bucks Island is a full-service facility that sells new and used boats and motors. Visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metal Works. Dixie Supply and Baker Metal Works are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. Save time and money by buying from the most reliable manufacturer on the Gulf Coast. They now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metal Works, your metal roofing headquarters. And also brought to you by The Hunting Exchange. Buy and sell your hunting gear securely online. PayPal protected purchases, no hidden charges, listings are free. Head over to the App Store or Google Play and download the Hunting Exchange app today.